Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. I have always been fascinated with history and the locations where that history took place. When I was little, my dad used to drag us down to the Alamo in San Antonio, standing there in front of the Alamo. I used to imagine what it would have been like for Santa Ana and his troops to scale the old mission. As an adult, I've had the privilege of visiting the most famous house in America, the White House. As I've sat in the East Room many times for different ceremonies, my mind would wander and I would wonder what it was like for John and Abigail Adams, who were the first residents of the White House and actually hung their laundry in what is now the East Room, what it was like for them. But of all the historical locations I've visited, the one that has meant the most to me is to visit the land of Israel. There is something about walking on the stones where Jesus walked 2,000 years ago. There's something about standing on the Mount of Olives and realize this is where he ascended into heaven and where he's coming back one day. To stand in the front of the empty tomb and realize this is where Jesus conquered death forever. There is something faith-affirming. I hear it from people all the time. Said, my faith came alive after a trip to Israel. Why is that? There's something about being in that location that lifts our faith from what we sometimes think of as mystical and even mythical to actual events that happened in a time, place, location. We have a desire for physical, geographical representations of our faith because we are physical beings. In fact, when Jesus came, he came in the flesh. 1 John 1.1 says, what we have heard with our ears, we've seen with our own eyes, we have handled concerning the word of life, Jesus. In other words, John was saying, he wasn't just a spirit. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him. It's everything normal for us to desire physical representations of our faith. I think that's why people have for 2,000 years searched for relics like pieces of the cross, or they get excited when they think they have found the nails that were driven into Jesus' hands. They enshrine certain locations and make them holy places. It's part of the way we're made as physical human beings. The downside of seeking physical representations of our faith is that if we're not careful, we start to worship the objects of faith rather than the God whom those objects represent. And that's not just a minor technical difficulty. It is a major issue as evidenced by the second commandment we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're in a series I'm calling The Ten, How to Live and Love in a World That's Lost Its Way. We're looking at the Ten Commandments. And you remember last time we looked at the first commandment. It's found in Exodus 20 verses one to three. 
as the Israelites planned to enter the promised land, God told them that they were going to be faced to worship many false gods of the Canaanites. And that's why the very first commandment, verse 3, was you are to have no other gods before me. Esteem God alone, we said. Why is God to be worshiped above every other God? Remember the reasons in verse 2 that God told Moses to worship him alone. God alone is our creator, our covenant maker, our rewarder, and our redeemer. And then to verse 4, the second commandment flows naturally out of the first commandment. Look at it with me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, you need to know there are some faith groups that actually believe all of this is one commandment, both verse 3 and verses 4 to 6. It's all part of the first commandment. You're to have no other gods before me, and you're not to make any images of me and worship them. If they combine the first two, then how do they come up with 10 commandments? Well, these faith groups take the last commandment and separate it, the one about coveting. They say the ninth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and then the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. I believe that's incorrect. I believe the coveting commands go together. But I believe verse three is its own commandment. You are to serve no other gods before me. And verse four through six, you're not to make images of God. I believe these are two distinct commandments. You see, the first commandment tells us whom we're to worship. We're to worship God and God alone. Don't worship a false God. That's what the first commandment is. The second commandment is about how we're to worship the true God. We're to make sure we're worshiping God alone and not some man-made image of God. Now, what is this commandment prohibiting? Is it to say we're not to have any kind of artistic representation of angels or anything in heaven on earth? That's what it seems to say. But if that's true, then God violated his own command. Because remember, in Exodus 31, he was giving instructions about the artwork that was to be in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And he said to gifted craftsmen, you are to make artistic designs in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones and the carving of the wood. The tabernacle was adorned with representations of angels and palm trees. Remember on the Ark of the Covenant, the lid, they fashioned the two angels, the cherubim, to guard the holiness of God. This isn't an absolute prohibition against any artwork, but I think, as one commentator said, what God is prohibiting is infusing these objects with any kind of spiritual efficacy power. In other words, to imagine that these objects have some supernatural power to draw us closer to God or to establish communion with God. That is what is being prohibited 
Now, like most of the Ten Commandments, this commandment starts out with a negative, don't do this. It prescribes the judgment, the consequences of those who violate the commandment, and then it ends with a promise. I think the key verse is verse five. You are not to worship these images or to serve them. What is the danger of images of God? There are two of them. First of all, images diminish the glory of God. They diminish the glory of God. Remember the story I told you over Christmas? Well, first grader Johnny, who's working on his art project, the teacher says, what are you drawing, Johnny? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. She says, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And Johnny says, they will in a few minutes. You know, it's a funny story, but it makes a point. The problem when we draw images of God is we reduce God. We diminish the glory of God. And a great illustration of that is Exodus chapter 32. Remember the children of Israel had crossed the Red Sea. They were on the way to the promised land, but they stopped at the base of Mount Sinai. And remember, Moses went up to the top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the law of God. The Ten Commandments is all the other law. Interestingly, while God was giving the commandments to Moses, the Israelites below were breaking the very commandments Moses was receiving, including this one. The Israelites, they were discouraged that Moses had left them. They hadn't heard from him. They didn't know what had happened to him. They said, maybe he's died. We're without a leader. So they go to Moses' brother Aaron and they say, we need something we can worship and follow. We want you to make an image of God. And so uh, they said, we need a God who will go before us. And so what did Aaron do? He uh, acquiesced to that command. And in Exodus 32, he said, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And then the scripture says, Aaron fashioned the gold into a molten calf. And when the people saw it, they worshiped it. And Aaron said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up for the land of Egypt. Now you have to think, what in the world happened to Aaron? Did he fall into idol worship? Did he start following prematurely the Canaanite gods? Why would such a righteous man start worshiping the wrong God? Well, he didn't. He wasn't worshiping the false God. He was worshiping the true God. He hadn't become a pagan all of a sudden. Sudden, the reason I know that is in verse five, he says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. He wasn't worshiping a false God. He didn't think this was a new God. He thought it was a representation of the true God. They wanted something visual that they could follow. He didn't think this was God. He thought it was a representation of God. You say, well, then what's wrong with that? God is like a powerful bull. He is strong and mighty and able. He is the one who just parted the Red Sea. What's wrong with depicting God as a powerful God? Well, it's true. God is powerful, but he's other things as well. He's holy. He's just, he's forgiving, he's omniscient, he's sovereign. 
And that bull doesn't represent all of those things. It just represents one aspect of God. It doesn't tell the whole story about God. By the way, that's the same trouble with a crucifix. A crucifix, a cross with Jesus on the cross that some use in worship. What's wrong with a crucifix? Jesus did hang on a cross. He did suffer an agonizing death. He did die for the sins of the world. That is central in Christianity. That's all true, but it's only half the story. That Jesus, who was on the cross, arose from the dead three days later. And the cross is empty, and he's in heaven right now. There's nothing wrong with what the crucifix tells, except it doesn't tell the whole story. That's the problem with an image. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, you are splitting hairs theologically. No image can tell everything about God. Exactly. That's the point. That's why you shouldn't use images. It reduces God. It diminishes the glory of God. Isaiah 40, 18 says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? He's incomparable. There's no way to picture who God is. Images not only diminish the glory of God, the second problem is they distort the truth about God. Once you diminish God's glory, it's easy to distort the truth of God. When you reduce God to something you can handle or you can see, once you have diminished God, it's easy to distort God and make him whatever you want him to be. A great example of that is found in Romans chapter one. Remember, God is describing those who have rejected the knowledge of the true God, which by the way, everybody has by looking at nature. You can know there is a God by looking at nature. But some people have rejected that knowledge of the true God, and instead they have created a false God and made him whom they want him to be. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, Romans 1, verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then they worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. They tried to reduce God to this image that they had made. And then they imposed upon this new God whatever values they wanted. And you read Romans 1, part of those values were sexual immorality. They imagined to be a God who approved of same-sex relationships, men lusting for men and women for women, and every other kind of immorality. The pattern is you reduce God and then you distort his truth. And by the way, the same thing is happening today. Our society wants to diminish God, to downsize God into something manageable that we can understand and control, and then we distort the truth of the real God. I saw a great illustration of this just a few years ago in that popular movie that came out. Remember Evan Almighty? Did you all see the movie? It's a comedy and it's an entertaining movie. It's a modern day riff on the flood story. In the movie, God is portrayed, he's been reduced to Morgan Freeman. That is God. 
and he comes to Steve Carell, a modern-day businessman, and orders him to build an ark, a massive ark, and to have the animals get on the ark because a great flood is coming. And so in one key scene, the Steve Carell character is talking to God and asks him about the original Noah and the ark story. And this is what God, that is Morgan Freeman, says. He says, you know, a lot of people miss the whole point of that story. They think it's about God's wrath and anger. Evan says, well, if it's not about his wrath and anger, what is the story about? And God answers and says, well, I think it's a love story about believing in each other. You know, the animals showed up in pairs. They stood by each other side by side, just like Noah and his family. Everybody entered the ark side by side. Oh, isn't that a sweet story? <laughs> if you don't like a God of wrath and anger and judgment, adopt this God. Let Morgan Freeman be your God. I like a God who doesn't judge people. I like one who encourages unity among people. Teamwork makes the teamwork, make, makes the dream work, you know. Why not have that kind of a God? And you hear that all the time today. You know, when I imagine God, that's your first clue, something bad is coming. Whenever I imagine God, I imagine him to be a loving God, not a judgmental God. I imagine God to be somebody who allows everybody into heaven, not just one small group that trusts in Jesus. That's who I imagine God to be. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not the sum of your speculations about him. Whenever you imagine God, you are violating the second commandment. You are creating a God in your image instead of a God that is revealed in Scripture. And that's what the problem with uh, images of God are. It not only diminishes the glory of God, it distorts, it allows us to distort the truth about God. Why worship God only and not images of God? He gives us the reason in verse five. He said, I'm the Lord your God and I am a jealous God. He goes on to say in Isaiah 42 verse eight, I am the Lord God and I will not give my glory to another. Now we read that negatively, say a jealous God, not share your glory. What's wrong, God? Are you that insecure? Are you that paranoid that you think somebody's gonna take away your glory? Look, remember these commands are not for God's benefit. They're for our benefit. God has a holy jealousy. He loves us so much, he doesn't want us to get distracted and deceived by false gods that can never meet our needs. He gives us command for our reason. And he said, if you disobey it, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, some people misinterpret this verse. They believe in what is called a generational curse. <clears throat> they believe that there are certain sins that if your forefathers committed them, that somehow you're held guilty for what your forefathers did. And there's this unbreakable generational curse that goes from generation to generation. There is only one sin that was accounted to everybody's account and that is Adam's sin. Romans 5.12 said, for through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death spread to all men because all sinned. We are held accountable for Adam's sin. That is true. And if you think that's unfair, 
rest assured in this, you verify that, and I do, every hour of every day by sinning against God. We all sin because we've inherited Adam's sin. But outside of Adam, you and I are not accountable for anybody else's sin. We are accountable for our own sin. That's what God said in Ezekiel 18.20. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. We are not held guilty for somebody else's sin. So that's not what God is saying. The third and fourth generations will be held guilty if you violate the second commandment. But there are powerful influences we have on succeeding generations. A sin pattern that is developed by parents or grandparents, those habitual patterns can be learned and repeated by generation after generation. If you abuse alcohol, if you abuse drugs, if you engage in affairs and sexual immorality, your child is not automatically cursed, but they do learn that pattern and are bound to repeat it. The good news is through the power of Jesus Christ, you can break those addictions. You can break those chains. You don't have to repeat the same sins of your parents and your grandparents. He is a jealous God, but he is also a generous God. Look at verse six. But I show loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, you may be thinking, I have a little bit of a gift of mind reading. <laughs> I have an idea. You've probably thought a few minutes ago, well, pastor, I may be tempted to lie, to steal, to commit adultery. I may be tempted with all those things, but this is one sin I am not guilty of. I don't have to worry about this one. I've never made a graven image and bowed down to it. So what's the application to me? How do we obey this second commandment? I want to remind you of that quote by A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you think about God, and hopefully you do, how do you make sure it's the real God you're thinking about and not the God of your imagination? How do you obey this second commandment? Let me give you three practical principles for obeying this commandment. First of all, don't diminish God through images of worship. Don't diminish God through images of worship. Now, this is the most logical application of this. Be careful about your use of images and objects in your worship. For example, the cross. We have a cross in our church, a beautiful stained glass cross. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf so that we could have the forgiveness of our sins. There's nothing wrong with cross. You should know that Christians didn't start using the cross as a sign of worship until 400 years after Christ. Did you know that? It's not a part of worship in the early church, but we use it today and that's fine. There are other images, but here's what the commandment is saying. Don't confuse the objects with the object of our worship, God. 
Some groups use actual objects as almost like good luck charms. They rub the beads or they worship the cross. Don't get the things confused. Don't use them as a substitute for worshiping the true God. You see, the problem, the problem of these physical representations of faith or objects is they appeal to the sensual in us. Now, by sensual, I don't mean sexual. I mean they appeal to our senses, our physical senses. And our senses encourage sentimentality. And ladies and gentlemen, if you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. There is a difference between sentimentality and spirituality. Don't confuse the two. For example, I love the movie, the old movie, Old Yeller. Every time I watch Old Yeller, I get misty-eyed. I've seen that dog die a thousand times. But I get misty-eyed every time I see it because when I see it, you know what I do? I start thinking about my dog, Rebel, who died. And, you know, I tear up thinking about Rebel and so forth. That's sentimentality. It's not spirituality. When we sing the national anthem at our patriotic service, I get a lump in my throat. I get goosebumps. That's sentimentality. Nothing wrong with that, but don't confuse that with spirituality. You see, spirituality is not about how you feel. It's feelings that hopefully lead to actions, to obedience to God. You know, people sometimes judge worship by how they feel. Oh, how did you feel about the music today? Oh, how did you feel about the preacher? Well, I felt this way. I didn't feel like that. Hey, God doesn't care about your feelings, okay? It's not all about these superficial feelings. It's about obedience to God. You know, there's this revival you've read about going on at Asbury School in Kentucky. I've seen some of the clips of it. Looks wonderful. I don't know. People, somebody asked me Thursday night at a Q&A, what do you think about that? I hadn't been there, so I can't judge it. But here's what I can judge. I judge any worship service, any revival by this standard. In fact, you might want to write it down. You know what true worship, true revival is? You want to know how you've experienced true worship or true revival? True worship, true revival occurs when a child of God, having heard the word of God, is encouraged by the spirit of God to obey the will of God. True spiritual experience won't be just simply measured in spiritual goosebumps. It will be measured in your obedience to God. Let me say it again. True worship revival occurs when a child of God, having heard the word of God, is prompted by the spirit of God to obey the will of God. The problem with images is it encourages the sensual sometimes rather than the spiritual. Don't diminish God through images of worship. Secondly, don't define God by yourself. Don't make God look just like you do. For example, I mean, I'm very proud that I'm a citizen of this great country. I think God has blessed America. We have a patriotic service to celebrate God's blessings upon our country. But even though I'm patriotic and proud to be in America, I do know that when Jesus came to that feeding trough in Bethlehem, he didn't come wrapped in an American flag. He came wrapped in swaddling cloths. And when we try to define God by nationality and think of God as an American, we alienate a whole segment of our entire world. God is not an American. Uh, I have strong feelings, as you know, 
about certain political issues, and I vote a certain way. But I also recognize God is not a Republican. God is not a Democrat. God transcends political parties. What I'm saying is don't define God in such a way as he looks like you. He thinks like you. He votes like you do. God is transcendent, and we need to be careful that we don't uh, diminish him or define him by ourselves. And finally, don't downsize God by traditions of worship. Don't downsize God by traditions of worship. The very first church I went to pastor, I'll never forget, they had an order of service, and part of the order of service was they sang the doxology right before they took the offering. Well, little innocent me, I decided after a few weeks that I would change the doxology and put it at the end of the service. There was an explosion. You would have thought I had denied the virgin birth of Jesus Christ by moving the doxology. They just went ballistic. And there are some people think, well, you can't worship if the doxology's there. It has to be here in order to worship God. There are other churches that think God's word can only be heard from behind a wooden pulpit. If it's plexiglass, God's word cannot transcend the plexiglass pulpit. It has to be. Now, you think I'm kidding. I am not kidding. There are churches that have split over whether the pulpit ought to be wood or plexiglass. Some people in traditions of worship, they are absolutely sure that God cannot worship, be worshiped by music that has been written after 1970. If it was written after 1970, it doesn't honor God. There are other people who think it can't be, God can't be worshiped if it was written before 1970. There's nothing in the 1800s or 1900s that can be worshipful. There are some people that think God can only be worshiped through a choir and orchestra. There are others who think he can only be worshiped through a praise band. Don't reduce God by your traditions of worship. That's what the second commandment of God, of, of Exodus 20 is. Don't diminish him. Don't define him. Don't downsize him. Well, pastor, then what is true worship? Do you remember in John chapter four, Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. He was talking to her about her eternal soul. And he began to probe a little too closely to the heart of the matter about her own morality and her marriage situation. And so she tried to distract Jesus with a theological question. And she said, you know, uh, Jesus, our fathers, the Samaritans, said that the right mountain to worship on is Mount Gerizim. And you say that the right place to worship is on this mountain. Which mountain is the correct mountain to worship on? Do you remember what Jesus said? Here's the Jeffers paraphrase. Lady, the hour is coming. In fact, it's already here when that doesn't make any difference at all. And then he went on to say, for God is what? Spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's how we're to worship. We're to worship God in spirit. God can't be defined by a location or a tradition or an image. God is a spirit. Worship him as a transcendent spirit and then worship him based on truth. Make sure when you worship, the God you're worshiping is the God of the Bible, 
the true God, not the God of your imagination. For Jesus said, those kind of worshipers, the Father is actively seeking. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.